So today we are bringing to close our first mini-series in the Book of Romans. Uh, we, if you are joining us for the first time, you have come in at the very beginning. We are at, I believe, I think we're going to do 48 or 52 weeks in our series through the Book of Romans, and we are on week 9 today. So you've got, it's quite timely. If you're looking for a church, you can still jump in, get the most, most out of Romans yet. But we're coming to the close in this section, and we've, we've reached the, the place where Paul's argument, he's talking about his argument re, about revealing, the revealing of God's righteousness, God's holiness, his pureness, his beauty. And we've started our, our journey through eight sermons ago by looking at these 17 verses as they laid out a vision for the gospel that has been based on faith. Chapter 1, verse 7 captures the very essence or the very heart of this book. It says this, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God, is revealed from faith for faith. For it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So after establishing the premise that God gives righteousness as a gift, God gives righteousness as a gift, Paul moves into an absolutely blistering analysis of humanity. And honestly, if you have stuck with it, Messio Day Church, for these past six weeks, kudos to you. Because it has been uncomfortable at times because basically God has done put a searchlight and he has gone into our, our dark places in our hearts and our lives and he reveals our brokenness. And he says, this is you. No more hiding. Be honest. This is who you are. For the last, the last six sermons, we've examined the absolute depravity of humanity from just multiple different angles. We've seen the underlying problem of unbelief. That sin is a failure. Ultimately, sin is a failure to honor God for who God is. We've seen the exchange for the glory of God and the beauty of God for the glory of mankind. We've also saw the expression of unbelief in the pagan world through, a, through their, our darkened understanding, our, our idolatry, sexual immorality, sexual impurity, and all kinds of other sinful behavior. And in chapter 2, what does Paul do? He, he kind of shifts his attention to a Jewish audience who might have been inclined, after Paul's been addressing these pagan people, these, these Gentiles, these Jewish folks are saying, yeah. You get them, Paul. You nail them. Nail them. And Paul takes his attention and says, I'm not done yet. You are next. You see, this Jewish audience was inclined to think that they were better off because God had, had given them the law. He had given them the sign of, of circumcision. So, and what Paul basically does is he dismantles them. He addresses the, every one of their excuses or their self-justification whatever they had, and he helps them to see that God is a God who shows absolutely no partiality. No partiality. Both Jews and Gentiles are in the absolute same spiritual condition. I don't care who you are, where you're from, what your religious background is, God shows no partiality. So last week I introduced the fair doctrine of the fairness of God. This just doesn't seem fair. And I've heard a little bit of feedback about this. 
that has been about going around some office circles and uh, home circles about what is fair. And Paul anticipated, even in his arguments, that some people might suggest that God's plan, his, his giving of righteousness apart from our works and ultimately holding us accountable for sin, is just not fair. And so what I tried to do is to show you how we often take our doctrine, our understanding of fairness, into the Bible and help it, it we try to interpret God's ways by our understanding of fairness. In this next section, Paul is going to take us all the way through chapter 4. He's going to show us the idea of a righteousness that saves by Grace. We have been saved by grace. And for some of us, we're just going, thank God we're at that point of grace. Because this blistering analysis of human depravity is really difficult. I'm looking forward to hearing we've been saved by grace. And he's going to use the story of Abraham's faith as, as in God's promise as a central picture for us to understand that we have the righteousness that comes through the gospel and how we are saved by grace. And that's going to be coming up next week. But this week, it is the conclusion of our first section. And it's kind of a culmination, a summary of all that Paul has been saving so far. So look, if we're looking at verses 9 and 10, it's kind of a, a thematic introduction for the entire section. And it flows out of what Paul has been addressing all in chapters 1 and chapter 2. So it's kind of that summary statement that kids, you've been taught in school. All right, you've got to kind of bring it to a conclusion. What's your summary statement? Okay, and your teacher's going to say, good job. So Paul is doing a good thing and bringing it kind of to a conclusion. And his summary statement is here, namely that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. That's a summary statement. And it's repeated it's further repeated in verse 10 with this phrase, none is righteous, no, not one. It's like, okay, if you didn't hear it the first time, let me give it one more way. Everything through verse 20 is supporting, illustrating, summarizing the proposition that all of us are under sin. So before we unpack that theme, notice that Paul responds to, responds to another kind of rhetorical question regarding Jewishness. What then? Are, are we Jews better off? And this should sound familiar for us as we go back to chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul ad addresses the similar objection that Jewishness was not important at all. And verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3 highlight that there was and there still is some great advantage of being Jew, a Jew, since the Jews were entrusted with the very words, the oracles of God. So there are advantages left and right related to the promises, the promises that God has. <coughs> However, those promises did not give them a pass. It did not give them a pass on judgment or guilt. And that's what 3 and verse 9 is all about. The Jews had a great advantage of the promises that God has in store for them. But he does not give them a, 
a pass or a freedom from guilt. And there's a great Old Testament passage found in the book of Amos that captures this exact same theme. And Amos 3, verse 2. You only, God is saying this, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, God says, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Parents, you, you get it, right? I've got, I've got great things in store for you. I've got amazing things in store. If you are faithful to these promises, you want a car when you graduate high school? If you're faithful, maybe if I had the cash, I will bless you with a car, college, tuition, a, a life in our home. I'll clothe you if you respond faithfully. But because I love you, I will also punish you. I cannot ignore your sin. I cannot ignore your disobedience. I love you, therefore I must punish you. That's what a good parent does. If you don't, you will have raucous, crazy children. As a former teacher, I've seen it. <laughs> so the first three chapters of Romans are designed to just drive home this, this singular point re regarding the absolute impartiality of God and the universality of sin. Those two things. There, there is, God is absolutely impartial. And sin is absolutely universal. And that is why Paul says here that we are all under sin. All of us are under sin. So what does this mean that we are all under sin? I think it's absolutely critical that we understand this. Because if we understand this, it will help us understand the gospel, appreciate the gospel even more, and give our lives more to the gospel. Paul is going to unpack it even further in verses 11 through 20. And he will use the Old Testament as his basis for his charge. This term is absolutely important for us to understand. Because the whole book of, of, of Romans shows us the gospel. And how the gospel is, is to be the means by which people are delivered from our position under sin. So it's critical that we understand it. So, friends, here's this. The power of God in salvation does some amazing things. It conquers the power of sin and the actions that spring from it. That's what God does in salvation. He conquers the power of sin in our lives and the actions that spring from it. So to be under sin means that Sin somehow has power in our lives. It has power in our lives. Throughout the book of Romans, Paul gives all kinds of examples of power, the power of sin. You can see in Romans 5, verse 21, that sin is designed, or is described as reigning in our lives. Not reigning, but having power like a king. Romans 5, verse 21 so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or Romans 6, it says that sin enslaves people. And I think some of you go, I know, I, I've been there. I have felt how sin has me trapped in this 
relationship of slavery. I feel like I am shackled to this sin. And Romans 6, 6 says this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, the whole mass of sin, might be brought to nothing so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. It talks about how sin reigns over people. It talks about how sin dominates for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but you are now under grace. So you can summarize all this by simply saying that to be under sin means that you are a slave to sin. To be under sin means that you are a slave to sin. To receive and believe the gospel, friends, means that there is a fundamental change in your position. And that changes from being under sin to being in Christ. That's what happens when you believe the gospel. You are no longer under sin, but you are in Christ. Your position changes. So to believe the good news means that you have been delivered from the slavery of sin, and you have, are now slaves to righteousness. Listen to Romans 6. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves to sin. You were one time. That used to be who you are. You, were, you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you have committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So this is the very foundational concept of understanding the gospel and God's righteousness. It means that the problem with our humanity is not just what we do. It means that sin has a, an absolute stranglehold on humanity such that the, the Bible calls it slavery. But here's the beauty. Delivery through the gospel means a greater power has taken hold of the human heart. That's the good news of the gospel. Although the first two might be true through the gospel, we've been, we've been delivered from the stranglehold of sin. For Paul and the message of the Bible, the starting point of the gospel is always a dark, enslaved, spiritual doing reality connected with being under sin. And there is no one who is immune. No one. There's no one here who is immune from that basic and damnable condition. We are all under sin. Humanity. There's no one in humanity who is morally neutral. No one. We are in great spiritual danger because we are under sin. And we need to recognize that. So... Paul wants to kind of describe this a little bit more. He wants to show us the effects of how being under sin, under sin affects every one of our relationships. He's going to first describe how our being under sin affects our relationship with God. He's going to, he's going to describe how it re affects our relationship with people. And then ultimately, how being under sin affects our society. All kinds of relationships. So first... He looks at how sin ruins our relationship with God. Notice in verses 
10 through 12, how often Paul uses this phrase, not one. He does it five different times in different kind of ways. Not one is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. No one. Paul uses this formula to just kind of drive the Mack truck home and hit us head on with the, the understanding of the universality of sin. This repetition is absolutely intentional. Again, if, if you're a parent or probably an employer, how many times do you have to repeat things? <laughs> Non-stop, right? Why do you not get it? And Paul is using that same tactic of saying, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one does good. Not even one. And he's just driving it home, saying, listen, you are all rebellious. And he does it to communicate that the fail about the failure of humanity. And it's not just a corporate issue. It is a personal issue. It's often easy when we look at the news to go, you see them? Right? Look at them. They're rioting. They're doing this. They're doing that. What about those guys? What about, you see what's going on over in the Middle East? What about them? What about, look at, look at what's going on downtown Chicago. Oh, look at that guy. Look at our neighborhood. And we forget that no one is righteous. No one. Me. Start with me. So Paul is diagnosing the condition of humanity, and the picture is not pretty. It's not pretty when it comes to our relationship with God. There are a few things to notice. He says, none is righteous. Our, no one stands before God in a spiritually right condition. Everyone is guilty. No one can say, well, look what I've done. I've given to the poor. I'm really a really nice husband. I'm a great guy. I'm a good employer. And God's going to say, no one. No one is righteous. It goes on to say, no one understands. Our, our primary failure is a spiritual hostility towards God, and our natural orientation is not towards seeking God, understanding God. That's our ultimate position. It also says that all have turned away. Our depravity <laughs> expresses itself in turning away from God and to other objects of our affection and our worship. We're guilty of that in our culture. Sometimes I think we, we are extremely guilty of child worship. Uh, no one here, right? You know? Whatever my kid needs, whatever my kid wants, I just want to give them the best opportunity. And God said, what about me? I, I gave you life. I've given you hope. I've given you salvation. I've given you breath in your lungs. All have turned away from him. They have become worthless. The effect of this turning away is that in God's eyes, we've become worthless or we've become corrupt, which is why William Barclay, great commentary, says that human nature without Christ is soured and a useless thing. A life without Christ is soured and useless. And then he, and Paul ends up by saying no one does good. Their, their evil deeds follow a foundational spiritual issue. Ultimately, even your good deeds are not good. But being under sin means that 
human beings have ruined their relationship with God. But that's not all. It doesn't end just there. And this is where it gets a little bit more personal. Verses 14 and 15 describes one of the most apparent uh, descriptions and results of our sinfulness. How we talk to other people. To be understood means that our sinfulness is expressed vividly, vividly, by virtue of what comes out of our mouth. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? Out of the overflow of the heart, your mouth speaks. I mean, some of you have felt that in arguments, right? Out of place of bitterness and resentment and anger. You try to be gracious in the moment, but what comes out? <laughs> right? And it's just like, I'm, I'm, I really am angry. And it, your heart is exposed in those moments. And I want you just to think of how destructive our words can be to relationships around us and how much of our world revolves around trying to determine what people really mean. That's why, honestly, I hate texting. I hate texting. It's kind of this necessary evil, but I can never really tell what you're trying to say or your tone. It's a great way to hide your sarcasm or your bitterness. And much of our life is trying to determine what are people really trying to say to me. And Paul begins by connecting the throat, which seems to be a source for him of speech, and he connects it to an open grave. There, there is nothing attractive, there is nothing beautiful, there is nothing sweet about an open grave. It is meant to be a metaphor that, that gets to our heart and says, I don't like that at all. He says, he says here that they use their tongues to deceive. The, the Greek word here kind of carries this idea of beguiling through words that are ultimately negative or untrue. And the words can also refer to flattery. Flattery. Something that can be really nice, but ultimately it's, it can just be false, too. I love what Tim, how Tim Keller kind of gives a, a distinction between gossip and flattery. Listen to this. He says that gossip is something you say behind someone's back, but you would never say it to their face, right? We can all say amen to that. While flattery is something, it's saying something to their face that you would never say behind their back. So just think about how complicated relationships are with people. And, and you ha always have a hard time, so what are you really saying to me? And it, are, would you say that behind my back to other people? What, what are you? How's this working? And, and this, this is part of the brokenness caused by being under sin. But Paul isn't done there. He says that our words are deadly and have a poison-like quality to them. What's more, he gives a picture of the poison is just kind of lurking behind our lips. And if you've sat in the front row with the pastor, you know when he gets talking, you are in the spit zone. Right? Get out of the way. And 
So Paul's using this image that there is tongue in our, in our mouths, just a poison that is just kind of lurking behind our lips so that as we're about ready to speak, it is about ready to be spewed out in any moment. And that fits what we know to be true, isn't it? How many things have you said and all of a sudden you go, oh, I wish I could take it back. Dang, why did I say that? Or I'm sure that many of us can remember that terrible thing that we has been said to us, right? And we still carry it around. And it feels like it's almost been said moments ago when he said this or she said this to me. And it's almost as a decaying poison in our body. Ever why wonder why people can be so cruel? It's because we are all under sin. Finally, these, the sins of the tongue are regrettably frequent. Life is full of relational conflict, verbal injury, and double meaning because the mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. It's full of The mouth is overflowing with sinful things. Why? Because mankind is under sin. Our relationship with God and with others is deeply flawed. But it comes to the next point, where sin ruins our relationship with society. Paul extends his diagnosis even, even deeper in verses 15, 16, and 17, which speak to the way our entire culture is affected by this condition of being under sin. Paul lists a series of sins that have a dramatic effect on our society as a whole. Murder, aggression, the shedding of blood are all directly related to the displaced spiritual condition of being under sin. From world history to family history, you do not have to search very hard to find that our culture has turned very quickly to a very ugly and dangerous place. And that is why the text says their feet are always swift to shed blood. We are prone, whether we want to admit it or not, we are all prone to inflict pain on each other. So the next phrase, in their paths are ruin and misery. It's not just a statement about the personal state of the mind or the condition of individual people. No, rather it's a statement about the wake of destruction that human beings leave behind. You put enough people together, including a church, and some level of conflict is always going to be guaranteed. Period. Always. Always. Even in your most personal, intimate relationships, husband and wife, for better or for worse, rich or for poor, to have yours part, guaranteed conflict. Amen? Amen. That's good stuff. <laughs> but finally, peace is, is usually elusive because the stage is set for, for, for difficult or for conflict. The way of peace they have not known. The more typical pattern for human history, if you look over the history books, the most typical pattern for human, uh, human life is the path of war. It's always conflict. There always seems to be violence. Can you imagine how boring human history would be 
if more would be taken out of, the gore would be taken out of, well, what a beautiful picture it would be. The gravitational pull in our human culture is always away from peace and always towards conflict. And this, this happens at every level of humanity, internationally. It creates the situations like we're observing in the work of ISIS, right? There is always a drive towards blood and destruction. <coughs> Nationally, just think of the moments when law and order break down. And what do people do? In our own city, law enforcement is scrambling in, their, in moments to do what they can to just tamp down the violence in the Chicago area. Whatever we could do just, just to kind of keep it under wraps. Or think about how quickly a family fun time can turn ugly and sinful. It can happen so quickly. And the Bible's diagnosis for all of this is that we are all under sin. The, the effects of this condition are sweeping at absolutely every level of relationship from God to to our closest relationships, our peers and our friends, to the society as a whole. And the tragic irony of being a human is that we take this fundamental brokenness because of sin into every area of our lives. Even the very best joys in life or the most happiest moments that we can have or the greatest pleasures are never truly whole or complete. Never. Even in your most pure moments of joy, followed shortly after, there's usually a pain, a struggle, a conflict. Our lives at every level are compromised by the curse of sin. So in other words, friends, sin ruins Everything. Ruins everything. Now don't, don't forget that this is only half of the story. You can be like depressed and go, oh, this just sucks. What am I going to do now? Paul's main point in this book is to point us towards a righteousness that comes to us from God. It, it comes. We, we get something beautiful. We get the gospel. We get new life. And it comes to us from God. The hope and the power of the gospel is that God can, through the righteousness of Christ, God can change a heart. God can change the relationships. God can change our culture. God can. The righteousness that God gives addresses the very core issues in the humanity that has spread its deadly poison into every relationship in life. The gospel takes us out of our slavery to sin, to being identified by our sin, to moving us and transferring us to being not just around Christ, but in Christ. In Christ. The gospel has the power to renew and change what sin has destroyed. That leads Paul to his summary and his conclusion to this entire section. First of all, 
He identifies the theological problem underneath everything that he has written from chapter 1, verse 18 on. And second, he dismantles any hope that there are exceptions to the accountability, our accountability before God. So verse 18 is the conclusion of Paul's analysis in, of verses 9 through 11. And this section in Romans, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The idea here is that it's more than just an emotionally being afraid of God because of who he is or what might happen to you. It's not that kind of fear. God is showing us here that sinful actions and attitudes at every level have a theological root and that the basic problem is a refusal to have reverence or fear of God, to respect God for God. It's the same thing that Paul has said in Romans 1, 20, 21 to 23. They did not honor him as God. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. So basically, Humanity does not just have a sin problem. We have a worship problem. It's not just that, man, I'm flawed here, and I've got, the, I've got this kind of cancer of sin. No, it's not just that. It's ultimately an external. Right? I have a worship problem. And ultimately, at the core, it's my heart. We love the wrong things. We express our disregard for God by doing what we want to do as opposed to fearing God and revering God for who he is and what he has done for us. We, we're, we're refusing to revere God. We want to revere me. I want to be the center of the universe. John Calvin, the great reformer, said, all wickedness flows from a disregard of God. All Sin is living as if God doesn't matter. And you can see it in certain niches of our culture. It just, it just doesn't matter. So what happens? Sin abounds. But it's not just in those little niches in our culture. It's even in our own hearts. And this, is no, this noticeable absence of the fear of God is the hallmark of humanity. It is our greatest problem. The, the, the second summary statement that Paul makes here relates to our final judgment. Once again, verse 19, he references the law, but this, in this context, he mentions it as the basis of complete and total judgment. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. Oh, what does he mean here? Paul is saying that the law was given to the Jews to demonstrate God's righteousness, his standard of holiness. And the failure of the Jewish people to keep God's law and the failure of everybody to keep God's law means that there will be no excuses and everyone will be accountable before God. Everyone, everyone in this room, ultimately, 
will be accountable to God. In fact, you are accountable to God right now. Accountable to God. There is a coming day, friends, where God will convincingly demonstrate his righteousness, his holiness, his beauty, and our lack of righteousness. The contrast between his righteous standard and the disobedience of each and every individual will be so clear, absolutely crystal clear, that every mouth will shut up. Every mouth will be stopped. God will reveal himself, and every human being will go, we're right. I have no excuse. Your holiness, your righteousness, my unrighteousness, my unholiness. There will be no more arguing because the case will become so clear and so obvious. Our, our worship of self and our worship of others as opposed to the worship of God, will become absolutely crystal clear. The whole world, the whole world will be accountable to God, and there will be no excuse. The final judgment will be based upon the fact that human actions are not able to create righteousness. I don't care how good you are, how much you give, how kind you are, what a great husband or a great wife, great friend, great lover, whatever you are, None of it matters. It does not create a true righteousness before God. It just doesn't. Human activity only results in more and more and more failure. And that's the point of verse 20. For by works of the law, your activity, no human being will be justified. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The message is bleak. Human beings, by virtue of their law keeping, cannot justify themselves because they continue to fail. We kept one, broke the next. Kept one, we break down. The condition of being under sin is not only breathtaking in its scope. It is also depressing and hopelessness. Apart from purpose. My goal this morning is to paint an absolute bleak picture for you. Bleak. If you are feeling at this point absolutely spiritually depressed, I've won. <laughs> I've done my job. Because we all should. Apart from Christ. Paul's message to the Jews is now complete. There is no spiritual hope in you. There's none. There's no spiritual hope. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing. You are lost, hopeless. It's bleak. It's damnable. Welcome to hell. The natural condition of humanity is no fear, and there are no exceptions. But I don't want to leave you there. I don't want you to walk around for the next seven days and go, I am screwed. This is just hopeless. I don't know what to do here. Paul quickly takes a corner, and we'll see it coming up next week. And I want you to hear this great and powerful verse in 3, chapter 3, 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested from the law. 
through the law and the prophets, though the, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. <laughs> so under the law, there is no distinction and no partiality. It is universal. But under in Christ, there is also no distinction. I try to make things clear through this first section that Paul is saying, what Paul is trying to say with these negative things in order to point us to Christ. The next step forward toward believing in Christ for the first time or embracing this belief that in a fresh new way, I, I want you to say, yes, my condition is bleak. It is terrible. It is broken. I am hopeless. I need a savior. I've got the answer. Christ, embrace the hopelessness of your living by you. I want you to embrace the hopelessness of living for you. And I want you to embrace the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is that you cannot create your own righteousness. You need another righteousness. You need someone else's right standing and holiness. Coming to faith in Christ means that you can have, you can walk away from trying to earn God's favor, trying to live right, trying to live a perfect life. You receive someone else's righteousness, Christ, and he clothes you in that righteousness. Becoming a Christian means that you saw the hopelessness of you. I'm absolutely hopeless, but you don't stay there. You see your hopelessness and you turn to Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. The hope of hopelessness means that the same equation, equation the, the turning from trust, trusting self to Christ, can be applied to absolutely every area, every arena of your life. It's not just about me and my personal relationship with Jesus. It, it means that making God your treasure, making God the priority, and, and glorifying Him has the power to transform how you see yourself, including your successes, including your failures. It means that the gospel transforms your relationships between your friends, your spouse, your children, your mother-in-law, your father-in-law, your uncle, your aunt, that guy down the street that drives you up the wall. It, tra it transforms absolutely everything. The gospel can, friends, hear this, the gospel can repair broken marriages. It can re heal wounded families. It can unite unreconciled friends. It can. And when this takes root in a cluster of people, when it, let's see what church, if it takes root here, it changes neighborhoods. It will change a community. It will change our city. When the gospel takes over a city or a nation, I can't wait to see that. You need to see that the gospel is the means by which true and lasting change takes place. The gospel 
by changing our condition of being under sin to in Christ, has the ability to radically change everything. Everything. And that is why, friends, Paul says this ever so famous uh, phrase, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for in it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So friends, hear this. Today is the day of salvation. Today, for anyone who believes if you're hearing this for the first time this morning, and it's stirring, and you are understanding your bleakness, the universality of sin, and your hopelessness before God, but you are hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, and that he will deliver and save and heal and reconcile and make all things new, today is the day of salvation. Today, by responding with a yes, Lord, <coughs> my life. All of it. Every nook and cranny. To take it. Form it. Make it new. Amen. 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 not too quickly run to that. Because not understanding our brokenness, not understanding our being under sin, and diminish the true power and beauty of the gospel. So Lord, take our lives, all of us.